I'm thankful, Father, for the work you're doing here at Oak Hill Bible Church. But most of all, Father, I'm thankful for the work you're doing in the hearts of each person who's made their home here at this church, including my wife and and myself, Father. Thank you for how you are working in us. For that, Father, that is the work that you alone can do. We put our hands to work that you give us, and we give thoughts to what we think you want, and we go after those things. We make goals and plans and Perhaps, Father, sometimes they are in your will and perhaps other times not. And those works, Father, are to your glory if we do them in your will. But they're not the real work of the church, not in the eternal sense, Father. The real work of the church is the work you alone do. First, in calling men to yourself by your word. And secondly, Father, by making us more like you in our hearts. That's a work only you can do. And you tell us that you do it through the sword of the Spirit, through the cutting away, so that our body and our soul are distinct in our understanding. We understand our flesh separate from our spirit. We understand that we are new in Christ in one and old in Adam in the other. And one must be shed so that new things may come. And you are doing that work, Father. You're exposing us to our sin, though in love and in mercy. You're introducing us to your word, though not without correction or rebuke. And you are calling us into a world, Father, that is lost and dying and desperately in need of these things. But, Father, help us to be like you so they have reason to listen. For we know, Father, that in the way Jesus modeled, it is the kindness of God that brings men and women to repentance. And not our haughtiness and not our intellect not our superior position in Christ, nor even, Father, the messages we might offer them of mercy and love. But, Father, it is your love, your mercy that draws them. And we just pray, Father, we wouldn't get in the way of that. By our life and by our words, we aren't a stumbling block, even as we might desire to win them for you. And, Father, sometimes we come to that moment unprepared, And perhaps in the wrong attitude, for whatever reason. And Father, when things don't go our way, we make excuses. And I ask, Father, that as we've studied in Ezekiel and continue to do so, and and seeing what was going on in his day and with the people of God under, under his charge, Father, I pray that you would not let us repeat some of their errors, that we'd learn from what we study. But at the same time, Father, we would understand that there, but for the grace of God, we might follow. And we don't want to do that either. So, Father, help us to understand what the goal is, what the attitude should be, how our approach to you should change. And then, Father, give us the heart to do it so that we may be more effective in serving you. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Lord has been telling us about a rebellious house in exile in Babylon, his people Israel. And they've been ignoring the word of a prophet sent to speak to them. And in the midst of where we are in this book, we're in the third section of the book as most people divide it. We're watching Israel give excuse after excuse to themselves or to each other for why they cannot listen to the word of God coming through Ezekiel. And then in each of these cases, as they give one of their eight excuses, they're going to hear a response from the prophet that the Lord is offering, giving them reason to reconsider their excuse, refuting those excuses, rendering them void, actually, by nullifying them. It reminds me of the story of a wife who rendered void her husband's excuse He came home one day from work and his wife just walked up to him at the front door and slapped him across the face. And he said, what was that for? And she said, well, I found this piece of paper in one of your shirt pockets with the name Jenny on it. 
And he said, oh, I was at the racetrack last week. That's the name of a horse, Jenny. I was betting on Jenny. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I shouldn't have assumed. Next day, he comes home from work, opens the door, smack. She slaps him a second time. And he says, what now? And she goes, your horse is on the phone. <laughs> no, old joke, but it's a good joke. All right. So we studied two excuses last week from the nation of Israel. And they were kind of, I think I called them two sides of the same coin. These are very similar excuses. The first one that they offered for why they would not listen to the word of God is that they denied that prophets could be trusted because the people said their predictions never come true. Yet we know that wasn't factual. They had, in fact, seen predictions come true from true prophets. But they offered that excuse nonetheless. And then the second excuse they offered at the end of chapter 12 was an acknowledgement that prophets do speak truth, yes, but the fulfillment of those prophecies is so far in the distant future, we don't have to concern ourselves with them. I called those two excuses denial and delay. Denial and delay. But as we're going to learn going forward this week, the biggest problem with the cynicism of Israel, the reason they could have these excuses, was that there were a lot of false prophets operating among the people, and they contributed to that cynicism and doubt. Because those men were outspreading false predictions that never came true, and God never sanctioned them to speak on his behalf, and he never gave them vision to know anything of the future. So they just plied their, their corrupt trade for the praises of men instead of for the praises of God, the approval of God. And in the end, they left the people with this illusion that you could not trust anyone who came along in sackcloth or ashes or you know, beards and locusts or whatever they were doing and claimed that they knew something about what God had planned. And that gave them the excuse they needed, their rebellious hearts wanted, to ignore anything that was spoken to them. At the end of last week in chapter 12, the Lord was accusing these men, these false teachers, of flattering divination. Flattering divination. Because what they were doing was telling the people exactly what they wanted to hear and about the future. And then in the process, they were collecting payment from these grateful victims. And then they just moved on. They're just con men. And because their prophecies inevitably prove false, they undermine the people's trust in God's word. So that led soon enough to Israel not being able or not being willing to distinguish between the true prophet and the false prophet. They just lumped them all together and they said the whole lot can't be trusted. But in reality, it was really their own hearts saying, I don't want to have to listen. So because the false prophets are eroding this trust, the Lord promised at the end of chapter 12 that he would have to act to remove this cancer from the people. And today in chapter 13, we learn how the Lord plans to do that. How he's going to take false prophets out of the land. And in the course of that, we're also going to come upon the third excuse. That's as far as we get today. It's just into the third excuse. Now, I'll warn you up front, the third excuse is a little buried into the events of the text. You wouldn't see it very easily, but we'll find it when we get there. First, let's just see how the Lord begins to deal with this cancer, I called it. The cancer of false prophets. Begin in chapter 13, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man... Prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, Listen to the word of the Lord. Well, thus says the Lord God, Woe to you, foolish prophets, who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying, the Lord declares. When the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. 
Did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you said, the Lord declares? But it is not I who have spoken. So this is the Lord speaking to these men, as if to them directly, but through the prophet. And he confronts these posers, and he calls them out. So verse 2, the Lord says that they prophesy from their own inspiration, which is really a way of saying they don't speak under the inspiration of the Lord. A true prophet, and that's a man or a woman, speaks under the inspiration of the Lord. What that means is they communicate things that could not be known by mere men, mere humanity, apart from the revelation of an omniscient God working by His Spirit. That's what we mean when we say somebody's inspired. does not mean they're under control. It's very easy to characterize this in a kind of cartoonish fashion, as if somebody was in a trance, their eyes roll in the back of their head, and suddenly their hands are moving without... No, that's divination. That would actually be uh, satanic if it was happening. We're talking about men and women who go about their day in a very normal fashion, but as they prepare to speak or write, the Lord makes sure that what comes out of their mouth is what He wants. It doesn't require anything more magical than that. And in that way, the Bible says that the prophet's own words will validate the authority of their office. So that if a prophet is false, and if that person's prophecies are not inspired, then that con man is going to eventually become evident to everyone on the basis of what they say. Eventually they're going to be shown to be a liar, because those prophecies eventually will not come to pass. But on the other hand, when a person is speaking under the inspiration of God and predictions come to pass, then that becomes validation for God's people that they are witnessing a prophet in an office that God has established. But that raises a question, of course. What if the prophecy is so far in the future that no one is around long enough to know about it? And we see plenty of evidence of that kind of prophecy in the Old Testament. Isaiah, for example, speaks of events that are centuries away. Well, the Lord had a plan for that too. It's very common, and you'll see this pattern as you look closely at the lives of the prophets. The Lord gave these prophets near-term prophecies, near-term visions, so that as those near-term visions were realized, they provided that validation so that the longer-term prophecies could be accepted as well. So false prophets are not inspired by God in this way. All they have to work with is, as God put it here, their own inspiration, which is no inspiration at all. It's worthless. Everything they predicted is just made up in their own heads. To borrow from what Nehemiah says to those who challenged him when he was rebuilding the wall, he says, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you're inventing them in your own mind. It's a great verse to pull out, and by the way, anytime you have to refute someone who's making stuff up. Just say, you know, go read Nehemiah 6.8. But notice in verse 2, the Lord's first command to these men is very interesting to me. What would you have said to these guys if it were you who had to rebuke the false prophets? I suspect we would have invented a lot of colorful things. We have a lot of ways we would want to rebuke these guys. But look what the Lord's rebuke to them is in verse 2. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now, it's a preparatory statement for what he's about to say, but I think it goes a bit deeper than that, because isn't this the solution to every problem, really? Listen to the word of the Lord. If these true men had truly had a heart to serve the Lord, they would have focused on learning from God rather than pretending to speak for God. If they had devoted themselves to a study of God's word, you know what they could have done? They could have at least spoken from an informed point of view. They could have at least benefited from the inspiration of God that is already there, revealed in Scripture. So even though they themselves weren't gifted by God to give special revelation, at least they could have shared some kind of godly insight from the word of God. That's better than nothing. But they didn't care about that. That's the point. They don't care about God's truth. They have no attention for it for themselves, much less for anyone else. What they wanted was not the people to give attention to God. They wanted the people to give attention to them. 
And so they walk around claiming to be someone of God, claiming to have insight, and just spouting off whatever came into their head. False prophets, and we we might expand this a moment and say false teachers, they thrive among people because we place too much emphasis on receiving special revelation from God and too little emphasis on understanding what has already been revealed to us in the Word of God. I'm not blaming us in that sense, but I am saying that there's a reciprocal relationship there. They have an audience for a reason, whether that's within the body of Christ and certainly in the world in general. We as the body of Christ have the full counsel of God's Word already given to us in the Bible, and that's to be our focus. That should be where we go. But there is that sense, at least among some, that it's not enough, or maybe it's not for them. So they seek for a sign or a wonder, or a supposed prophet, because they themselves believe they're the exception to the rule. You know, the Bible has something for you, but my situation's different. I know, I know, I know, people tell me that the Bible can help me, but I've tried. It's, it's not for me. So naturally, here comes a false prophet who would tell that person what they want to hear in the way they want to hear it, and not only is the word in entertaining, and in that case enticing, But their attention is enticing. The fact that someone has a word for me, that God spoke to me through this person. And the more that we're willing to seek for this kind of stuff, the more you're going to find false prophets and false teachers only ready to serve it up. But we already have everything we need right here. That's the message of Scripture. And if we take advantage of it, if we look at what's provided and go no further, you'll never exhaust its wisdom. You'll never go beyond its power in your life. There won't be a need for anything else. We wouldn't think it was... A problem that we don't have something unique because everything on the Bible would be unique in that respect. It's all derived, it's all given from God for our benefit. And God says that if these false prophets had done that for themselves, if they had gone into the Word of God, they would have at least had something of value to offer the people. But I think he's also looking in another direction as well when he says, hear the Word of the Lord. I think he might have been hoping that if they had actually gone and done that, they might have stumbled across the penalty that God proclaims for those who would dare to be a false prophet in His Word. Back in Deuteronomy in the law, when he spoke to Israel in the law, God said this in Deuteronomy 18.20. He said, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the names of other gods, that prophet shall die. And then God gave them a test. He says, Well, you may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And then he gives the test that they are to apply. He says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true... That is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So here's what the Lord said. He said, if a guy walks around saying he's a prophet, but he's speaking without my authority, he's doing it presumptuously. And the law says if such a person like that arises among God's people, put him to death, death penalty. And they would ask God, well, wait a minute. He's speaking all the time. How do we know when what he's speaking is false? What if he says 500 years from now something's going to happen? Well, the Lord says... Here's the test you should apply. If anything he says that he claims is prophecy ever fails to come to pass, and this is an absolute test, if even one time what he says does not come to pass, then he is to be understood to be a false prophet and he should die. In other words, everything he's ever said is wrong. Even if by luck he got it right sometimes. God's standard for determining a true prophet tells you something about the way a true prophet will operate, doesn't it? 
When God chooses a person to speak his word and he gifts that person by inspiration to do it with supernatural insight, the Lord is also promising that the Lord will have complete and perfect control over this guy's mouth every time he says, Yea, verily, the Lord says. That in that moment, God will never let the person speak in a wrong way. So that whenever the person claims to speak for God, he will be under God's direction and therefore will never prophesy in error. Now there are some who look at this passage and say, well, this is speaking about a prophet who goes awry, like a Balaam. And you could make that argument, and I certainly don't intend to deny it. But I think the sense of this is in the greater identification of a prophet. Who knows who's really speaking for God? So the expression of the prophetic gift is not a hit or miss affair. That's the point. God is not sometimes right. God is not sometimes able to inspire. God is not sometimes able to make sure that the man speaks the way he wants. God is never going to allow someone to be called a prophet and make a mistake. Because it makes sense, right? If men who are called into prophecy as a gift are wrong sometimes when they speak prophecy, well, what are we saying about the gift itself? What we're saying at that point is that God is now hoping we help him get it right. I think what the prophetic gift is intended in terms of the prophets of Israel... Those men came into their office with a specific purpose. God was going to call them to speak perfectly for his sake. When he was saying, I'm speaking the Lord's words, right? We're not saying that everything that comes out of the man's mouth is inspired. So the point of this is this, that in this day you have men who are walking around saying, I'm a prophet, and they're self-evidently not because they're predicting things that aren't coming to pass. And what the Lord is saying to Israel in the law is, every time you see that, you need to put a stop to that. Because otherwise, you're going to muddy the waters, So the Lord makes it easy to distinguish one from the other. If the nation of Israel had paid attention to that word, they never would have been taken in by these charlatans. So it all comes back to that, right? If you pay attention to the word of God, you get things right eventually. The time has come for the Lord to judge these men for their lies. And as he's promised to Ezekiel and the exiles, he's going to do it. And look at what he begins to do in verse 3. First, the Lord pronounces woe against these men. In Texas, we would typically use that term a different way, and it's not what it means here. We're not talking about... The deceleration of a horse. We're talking about woe as divine judgment. It can also be translated alas. And I like to think of it this way. It would be like the expression of a courtroom full of observers at the moment that a judge throws down the verdict of guilty and pronounces death. And everyone in the room goes, whoa, whoa, that's serious. And it's in the sense that somebody just got a serious judgment against them. So the Lord here is actually condemning them for their crimes. And the Lord describes these men's crimes in verses 4 through 7. Let's just run through them because he uses figurative language. He says they're like foxes, or the word in Hebrew could be jackal. It means a small animal scampering, he says, over the ruins. Foxes make homes in ruins, typically, in rubble. They like to hide in crevices. And it's a description of how these men are taking advantage of Israel's exile, their troubles in exile. Think of it this way. These men were preying on the people's fears and their worries and their desperation while they sat in exile. They're scoundrels. They're making a home for themselves in the rubble of Israel's ruin, working amongst them to take advantage. And in verse 5, the Lord indicts them for not standing in the breaches of those metaphoric walls, preventing, as it were, Israel from falling into ruin. It's basically saying this. The Lord's asking, where were you guys when Israel was doing all that sin that brought them to this point? If you really care about them and you think you speak for me, why weren't you working to save them from their sin before they had to suffer under the punishment of the exile? Why only now did you crop up? The city of Jerusalem fell under God's judgment because of their idolatry. Had these men be true ministers of God, they would have worked to end it. They would have saved them. 
Instead, they now pop up taking advantage of it. In verse 6, the Lord says, The people hear what these men say, hoping for the fulfillment of their false prophecies. So you have this desperate situation of people who have been brought into exile because of their sin, because they have leadership that has left them to it and put them in that danger. And they've placed their hope now in the lives of men who tell them things are going to get better when they're not. And every time they put their hope in what these guys say, it's dashed in the end. And in that way, you have false prophets making a bad situation even worse. And in verse 7, the Lord says, I'm going to bring judgment against you, saying, Did you not lie when you said you spoke for me, when you know you did not speak for me? And therefore, he says, I'm set against you then. Hey, look, when the Lord is your enemy, uh, there's no one who's going to save you from that. There's no recovery when the Lord is set against you. And he pronounces his sentence in verses 8 and 9. And it's a pretty harsh sentence. Look what he says. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, therefore, behold, I am against you, so my hand will be against the prophets who see visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord God. Here's what the Lord just said to these people. First, he says to them, you no longer have anything to say to my people. He's going to silence them. And as you're going to see, he accomplishes this by putting them to death through the very circumstances that they deny are coming to Israel. And then in verse 9, the Lord says, now that, and let me be clear here, that will deal with those who are in the city of Jerusalem. Because you have those who are still in Jerusalem, and then you have the exiles who are in Babylon. Those who are lying to the people back in Jerusalem to say, don't worry, your city's not going to be taken, they're going to die. That's easy enough. But what about the false prophets running around in exile with the nation that is now in Babylon? Well, here's what he's going to do to them. Verse 9, the Lord says, The names of these men will no longer be recorded in the register of the house of the Lord. The Lord says these guys are going to lose their citizenship within Israel. Because they lose their citizenship, they're going to be denied the right to go back to Israel after the exile ends. Here's how that works. Jewish identity was a carefully guarded feature in Israel, a carefully guarded quality. The Jewish population was scrupulous in determining the identity of those who were true Jews versus those who weren't. And they went to great lengths to verify that claim. Generally speaking, in Ezekiel's day, you were considered a Jew if your father was Jewish. And the father's Jewish identity was determined in the same way. His father, being Jewish, made him Jewish, and so on, all the way back to Jacob. So in order to verify claims to Jewish identity, what you had to know was your genealogy. You had to be able to demonstrate your family line. And the records of genealogy within all the tribes of Israel were a carefully guarded document within Israel. Those records were kept in the temple building by the time of the first century. And you could go and check the identity of any Jew against those records to validate their claim to Judaism. That's one of the reasons why the genealogy that begins the Gospel of Matthew is so important in the record of Scripture, because we know that account was written before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Had it been a falsified account, it would have been easy for anyone to go and show that the record was false by going to the temple. The fact that Matthew wrote it down and that it lasted the test of time is proof to us that Matthew's record of Jesus' life and his line back to David is accurate. Anyway, when the city of Jerusalem was taken in uh, in around 590, 600 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar, when they finally destroyed the temple, well, that takes care of all those family records, doesn't it? Well, not so fast. 
The Jews were careful about this. They took those records with them into exile because they wanted to preserve that identity. During the years of exile, the Jewish leaders did their very best to maintain those records. And the families, as they continued to grow in the years of exile, those family records had to be updated and they tried to do that. Most Jews who lived in exile remained fairly pure from what we know. That is, they didn't intermarry with Gentiles, but some did. And when they did, they forfeited their Jewish citizenship. They were cut out of that line. And then in some cases, the family records that were taken into exile were were lost in the turmoil of the exile, or they were mishandled at some point. And so it came to a point where families who were in exile could no longer vouch for their Jewish identity. And in that way, they lost their citizenship. Those records became really important about 70 years later. When it was time for the exiles to return and go back and rebuild their temple, after Cyrus took over from Nebuchadnezzar or from Babylon, and he releases the exiles to go back, as you know from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, it starts with Ezra recruiting those who would, by the Spirit, go back and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. But there was a point being made in the outset that only a Jew would go back and have a part to this work. This was a work for the Jewish people alone. If a Jew could not prove their Jewish identity at that time, they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and from the work of the rebuilding. And you see that reflected in the book. I'll just read one short little passage out of Ezra 2. It says, And all the temple servants and all the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Now these are those who came up from Telmalah, from Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emir. But they were not able to give evidence of their father's household. Notice that. They were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, basically their genealogy, whether they were of Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652. Of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakoz, and the sons of Barzeliah, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzeliah the Gideite, and he was called by their name. These searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. So you can see how they were very scrupulous about records and about using those records. In this case, they excluded some of the exiles from going back and others from being part of the priesthood. But now back to Ezekiel. With that background, you now understand what the Lord is threatening to do for these false prophets, don't you? When the opportunity arises for the false prophets and their families to go home to Israel along with the rest of the exiles, they're not going to be able to go back because the Lord is literally going to erase their names from the register of Israel. So in some supernatural way, when the rolls are pulled up, they're going to have mysteriously disappeared from the rolls. Can you imagine the moment? I know I'm in there. Can you check again? I've been there before. What happened? Some dumb clerical error, right? Come on. Didn't matter. Sorry, you're not here. You're not getting in like a bouncer at a club. Sorry, don't see your name. Maybe it's under my wife's name. Could you check real quick? So in this way, what the Lord is saying is, I'm going to ensure that when the time comes for the remnant to return, I'm going to filter out the false prophets. They will have no part in this return. Now, at this point, we reach the third excuse of the eight that we're studying. So up to this point, the Lord has made a threat against the false prophets, explain what he's going to do to judge them. And now Israel's back in the foreground here, making excuse for listening to these false prophets. It comes in verse 10. It's a little subtle, but you'll see it. Verse 10. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. 
Now he goes on to elaborate on that metaphor, but let's just pause there for a minute because you have to get a sense of what he's saying in order to follow the metaphor. This is the third excuse. And what the Lord does at the outset is he repeats what the people are saying. Remember, that's how the excuses always show up in the text. The Lord goes to Ezekiel, then repeats to Ezekiel what he's hearing from the people. And what he's hearing from the people is their excuses. Here the excuse is peace, which again is a little obscure, but here's what he's saying. The prophets are going around, the false prophets are going around, and they're telling the people that the future of Jerusalem is going to be one of peace. In contrast to what Ezekiel has been saying, which is, no, it's not. It's about to get wiped out. And instead of them seeing the fulfillment of all those disasters, as Ezekiel has said would come, what the people have chosen to do is believe the reports of the false prophets who are saying peace instead. So here's the third excuse in a nutshell. The third excuse is the people claiming that Ezekiel has been superseded by these other prophets. That essentially, Ezekiel has been predicting woe, these guys are predicting peace, so what they're saying is, oh, it looks like God has revised his prediction. Looks like the weather's changing, here's an update. He says, we're going to be okay after all, prophet XYZ is saying that we're fine. Looks like Ezekiel's prediction was just a false alarm. That's an excuse. Undoubtedly, you can assume that there were multiple voices among the people giving positive predictions of peace. How do I know that? Because the Lord speaks in plural. Flattering divination. What do we have on the other side? Well, from what we know, the only other voice that they would have had while they were in exile was Ezekiel. Now they have Jeremiah back in Jerusalem. They're saying similar things. But they're faced with a choice. Believe the minority report, which is negative... Or believe the majority report, which they prefer, and of course they chose the positive. And maybe they took some kind of confidence in the fact that they had more voices on the positive side than they did on the negative side. I don't know. But as we see with the earlier excuses, the truth was not hard for them to see. That's one thing you've noticed already, I hope. With each of these excuses, it's not like it was hard for them to understand the truth. It's almost willful blindness in this case. You have first the failures of these false prophets. Those failures had to have been evident by now. I don't know what these guys were predicting, but you have to imagine that at least somewhere along the way in all that they've been saying, somebody has taken note of the fact that they said X and X didn't happen. At that point, that would have been enough for them to say, don't talk to me anymore, at least if they cared what God's word said. So they had at least some sense, I would expect, to have rejected these guys. I'm not saying it would have been perfect, but they must have had some inkling that not everybody was right. But secondly, if these people had turned to the word, they would have realized that the standard for prophecy was that they have to see what this guy says come to pass before you can put faith in his prophecy. That's the implied expectation of the Deuteronomy test. It's not that I believe you until you're wrong. I start believing you when you're right. That's the authority. That's where I have thy confirmation from God that you are speaking on his behalf. And the Lord works with that to give us confirmation, ensuring that the prophecy has a short-term fulfillment, at least in some cases, so that I begin to build my confidence in what you say. And when I don't see it, I'm wary. Instead, they just ignored those things, and they clung to hope against hope. Thirdly, though, they could have seen how accurate Jeremiah and Ezekiel were. They could have seen that what Ezekiel has said has come to pass, at least in some of what he said already. And certainly Jeremiah's speaking of Babylon. In fact, for that matter, they could go back and look at Isaiah as he spoke about these matters. That the city would get conquered. 
So in the second half of verse 10, the Lord describes the work of false teachers as plastering over a wall with whitewash. And this is really where we're going to wrap up today is on this metaphor, because next week or next time we come back into the text, we're going to see more of this metaphor. Understanding this metaphor is really important to knowing what God is claiming the people are doing with this excuse. In the metaphor, the wall represents Ezekiel's prophecies concerning what will happen to the defenses of Israel. I think God uses wall as a metaphor because it's so closely associated with the actual thing that's going to happen, a wall being torn down, a wall being destroyed. Ezekiel has already said that in his previous prophecies. And the Lord compares those predictions of a wall being destroyed, the city being destroyed, the temple being destroyed to a wall. But you need to imagine this wall in a very certain way. I want you to imagine the ugliest wall you've ever seen. Think of it more like a wall that's about to fall down. A wall that is corrupted on the inside, it's teetering, it's ugly, it's decaying. Think of that kind of a wall. All right. And the Lord says, false prophets are those who walk around telling a different story, a lie. It's something intended to make you feel better about the future, contradicting God's word. It's like you're going around plastering and whitewashing this corrupt wall. That's what he says they're doing. They take the hard truth of God's coming judgment and they paint over it to make it look like it's better than it really is. But underneath, you still have the same rotten wall. That is to say, the truth ain't changing because you plastered over with whitewash. So it looks better, but the reality hasn't changed. It's still going to fall and there won't be anything saved by having made it look better in the meantime. This is a great picture of how false prophets work and how we let them work. That is to say, to the extent we give them any authority. They start with something God says. And that's very classic in the church today. One of the classic ways you'll see false teaching work in the church is they don't come in with something entirely new, or at least it doesn't seem to be. They seem to be working from something, but they're not working with it the way it was intended. They say something God has said, or they repeat it, but then they cover it over with this thick coat of lies. They whitewash it, so to speak. So that it's literally unrecognizable from where it began in Scripture. But someone who's ignorant or just immature in their walk of faith, what they've done is made something that was already a bit difficult to understand or to work with. They've just made it very appealing and very easy to work with, very alluring. But in the end, that whitewash cracks. You know, all that plaster starts to fall off. And in time, as God's Word stands the test of time and the lies don't, they're caught off guard. In this conference we just got done with, apologetics was the basic theme, but we covered it from a lot of different angles. And in one of the sessions I did, we talked about the tricks of the trade for false teachers, how false teachers do what they do. What are some things to look for in that? And one of the things we looked at were some videos of guys who do this stuff. I actually went out on the Internet and found some example videos of people. And we put them up there. I mean, they're on YouTube. They obviously want you to watch. In a couple of the examples we used, this kind of thing was, was right on display. People who took some words and they, they told you things about what it said that were not true, that sure sounded better. Things like you'll be rich if you give a lot of money away. I don't know how that works. Give a lot of money away and you get rich. But that's the call from Scripture, they say. What happens, of course, is people give a lot of money away and what happens? In this spirit of deception, what happens? The other guy gets rich. And in the test of time, when that doesn't pan out the way they thought it was going to pan out, Who do they blame? Well, quite often it's the Word of God. Quite often it's God Himself. As if God didn't keep some promise they thought God had an obligation to keep. We're going to return to this passage next time to see how God exposes the liars in His preferred way. But before we end today, I think I've got to ask that question I keep asking you guys after we hit each of these excuses. Remember? Have we used this excuse? 
That's the question we have to ask. Have you ever given preference to false teaching over the truth simply because the lie sounded better? And you might say to yourself, well, no, of course I didn't do that. Because the nature of the problem is we may not recognize it. So let me ask it this way. When you hear Bible teaching, or when someone offers you a perspective on the Bible, whenever, how do you know if they're speaking the truth? What is your measure? And the obvious answer is, well, I should go compare it to what's in the Bible so I can double-check what they say, right? But here's the problem. Most Christians are too unfamiliar with the Bible to do that in an instant. And let's be honest, most are too lazy to go do it later. So, what does the uninformed or immature Christian do when they're faced with some kind of teaching they've never heard before? And they're trying to understand if this is truthful or false. What do you think they do? I'm here to tell you, I think a lot of them guess. If they care at all about the teaching, if they don't dismiss it out of hand, I think they guess. And I have to suspect if that's how they're working with Scripture or with teaching in general, they're going to guess in favor of whatever sounds better. That's the natural human inclination. I think a lot of doctrinal disputes that we have in the church that divide us, they exist in part because that excuse is working in the thinking of people. I like that. It's preferable to me. It attracts me. And therefore, it's peace when everyone else is saying... Destruction. I like peace better. That must be the right answer. Sometimes it is. But it's not going to be right or wrong based on whether you like it. And that view, this view that we should favor the positive outlook in Scripture. Positive is a euphemism here, right? For, for the way I like it. That view is gaining hold in the church. I think that explains why plainly wrong teachings like there is no hell. Why those teachings have an audience at all in the church. The truth is, hell is operating today and more people enter it every day. But if hell isn't real, then why did Christ have to die for us in the first place? There's some basic logic that would dispute it. But people prefer to think that there is no such place, and so they prefer a teaching that affirms that view. So here's what excuse number three is. Excuse number three is believing what you prefer, even when you have to dismiss contrary evidence, and you do it because you don't want to accept the hard truth. It's an excuse made possible by believers who don't understand the Bible or won't do the hard work of verifying what they hear. They just ignore it altogether. And so they have nothing else to fall back on but personal preference. They may prefer the teaching because it agrees with some favorite idea of their own or because it agrees with what they were told by a spouse or parent or pastor or a denominational position. Whatever the reason for preferring it, it leads them down the wrong path. They, they prefer that over painting the hard truths of Scripture as they intended to be understood. Look, I know I'm preaching to a choir every time I stand up here because we are a pretty sound church. We like the Bible. We study it, I think, honestly. But none of us are immune to this. Just be aware that false voices speak flattering lies in contradiction to God's Word, and they do it expecting our ears to enjoy it. And they're getting louder. There are two major lies in the church floating around today that are built on this principle, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't at least acknowledge them for your sake so that you'd be aware of them, though I'm sure you probably are. One is the classic example of the prosperity gospel today. The other is the word faith movement. And there's a lot of people broadly capturing under each one of these. But the prosperity gospel says that a relationship with Christ merely will lead us to receive wealth and to receive success, but on earth. And that that's our primary reason for the relationship. The word faith movement says that we can claim any preferred outcome under any given situation, and the Lord promises to bring about that outcome so long as we have enough faith that He will do it. Each of those false views has a large community, and they all have a large number of devoted 
false teachers supporting it. Both of these false teachings tell Christians what they want to hear, that we can have what we want in this life, and both are clear contradictions of what Scripture tells us. But the majority of voices in the church today, and I would argue mainly on TV and in book stands, are echoing these voices, these false teachings. And the voices of truth that would proclaim the Word of God in contradiction to those false teachings are getting harder to find, and they're getting quieter, unfortunately, but for maybe a few. Because I think popularity is winning out. And therefore, if you should ever confront someone who's caught up in this kind of nonsense... What you should be doing is telling them what the Bible actually says. What will happen is they often won't hear it. In my own experience, you'll show them from Scripture that Christ did not promise to make everybody rich, that He taught that we need to be prepared to lose everything if the need comes. And you explain that the Bible says God does not cater to our desires. He's asked us to take up our cross and sacrifice our desires. But they won't hear it sometimes. They dismiss it because it doesn't appeal to them. And they'll tell you, that's just one voice. You know, TBN, I hear a lot of different voices over there. And the believers who've been sucked into that miserable deception spread by hypocritical liars are, are almost following after the footsteps of the exiles in Israel. They are giving attention to false words of counsel simply because they prefer that message over what the Word of God says. And that's an indication of how little they care about the Word of God. How do we help that group of people? Well, first of all, think inwardly about yourself. Are you doing enough as you listen to the Word of God to test it against what the Bible says? Hey, look, just because I say it, it should not be something you walk out of here with assuming I'm right. That's a recipe for disaster because sooner or later I'm wrong. When it happens, I'll let you know. (laughs) Oh, that's what my wife's here for. Never mind. But honestly, I say that with some facetiousness. But honestly, you know what? If I knew where I was wrong, I'd fix it. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. You don't know. At least not until you know later. So you have to be your own student. That's the first step, is knowing for yourself what you're going to test things against. And it can't be against feelings. Secondly, if you feel like you understand how things work in the Bible and you're in a position to help other people, you need to be aware of what you're coming up against in most people's circumstances. They are not interested in hearing your opinion. Not when it contradicts theirs. And when you think you're giving them God's word instead of your opinion, be careful because the two are kind of hard to tell apart sometimes in the, in the course of a conversation. You need to be asking them questions that are a little different than, uh, here's what I think, and you should take my view, or here's what the Bible says. You might start with, how do you know what's true? What's your standard? Where did you get this from? In other words, ask them to think twice about how they're working with the word of God, because in most cases, that underlying concern will start to solve a lot of other problems if you give them a chance to think about it. That's been my preferred approach. Rather than telling them what to think, I tell them how to think. And let them and the Holy Spirit work through what needs to be learned in the process. And then if they ask what you think, then you're in a better position to give them advice. The truth in these matters is not hard to find. It's just a matter of whether someone's willing to give their attention to it. And our job is not so much to bring them the the fish, as the saying goes, but to teach them how to fish so that they'll be able to understand things for themselves. In the day when the enemy is working so effectively to whitewash all the walls that are around us, we need to set our minds on becoming even better students of the Word so we can help others. That's our goal. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the Word. I thank you, Father, for the Spirit in us who is teaching us all these things. I thank you for your patience and forgiveness as we wrestle with it wrongly sometimes, even despite our efforts to do what's right. We thank you, Father, that you give us a means, a test for which we can know who to trust and who not to trust in these days. That if they speak according to your word, and if they speak 
according to your spirit, we'll know. And Father, we ask that as we confront those who might be doing otherwise, who might be speaking falsely or falling to this kind of stuff, we pray, Father, you'd always give us wisdom mixed in with love and patience so that we can be the kind of witness you would be through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.